Diana Livnat is Diana of Sephardi Beddin of the United Kingdom, a graduate of the Eretz Chemda Institute for Advanced Jewish Studies in Yerushalayim. Diana Livnat teaches in a number of programs for training rabbis and Dayanim, including the Semicha and Dayanut programs run jointly by the Montefiore Endowment of London and Eretz Chemda. Diana Livnat has previously served in an artillery unit in the IDF and is currently studying for a PhD in Jewish Studies at University College London. Again, for those who missed part one and part two, please do get in touch. I'll be happy to share the uh, videos with you. Um, Hacham, thank you so much for being here. We look forward to the shiur. Bachavod. Okay, thank you, Fina, again for that wonderful introduction. Um, so, so today we'll we'll discuss um, uh, you know some of the really modern uh, fertility questions and halacha and how this is really interesting because these are sort of cases that. I mean, you could not have imagined that, you know, the things that uh, the science is, is allowing uh, doctors to do today, um, especially in this field of fertility, and it's continuing uh, to evolve and uh, pose uh, challenges for uh, uh, Postim who try to address these issues from the halakhic perspective. Um, so we'll discuss, I'll try to focus primarily on on surrogacy and egg donation. If, if we have some time left over, we'll discuss a few a few other cases um, as well. What's interesting about uh, surrogacy and egg donation is that essentially these are two cases in which there are, normally when we have, we, we think of a child, we have um, a father and a mother. And the father's uh, side of the coin, you know, is relatively, relatively simple. He doesn't do that much. Um, uh, he provides the sperm essentially, and the mother, on the other hand, she on the one hand also provides uh, the egg, uh, the genetic uh, portion of the, her half of the genetic portion of the child, but she also carries the child in her womb and gives birth to the child. And in both surrogacy and egg donation, those two roles are split up because we have one woman that's providing uh, the egg. Um, the, 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 I guess you could call it the, the genetic material, at least from the, the female side of it, you know, that, would, that from that the ultimately the child will develop. And there's a different woman that's carrying the fetus in her womb and ultimately giving birth uh, to that child. And that raises several questions, but obviously the primary question would be in terms of how, which one of the children is is considered the the mother of the child, and that has, you know, obviously significant uh, halachic ramifications. Um, so, so we're going to try to cover, first of all, sort of a general approach, you know, to how how to try to tackle these issues, and also try to focus on um, who is considered the halachic mother in in these two scenarios, and also. Are there any limitations to this process? Are there certain things that are prohibited or uh, advised not to do? What, what considerations should be taken into place? Okay, and we'll see. Also, perhaps we'll discuss um, an interesting Israeli law that came about specifically on the question of egg donation, which was actually done to try to solve, uh, at least partially, some of the halakhic issues that that arise in the process. Okay, so first of all. You know, just a sort of a general approach to 
you know, to the issue when we have all these, you know, couples who aren't able to to bear children, you know, in the standard normal way, and they're offered, you know, these opportunities to 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 bring forth children using certain fertility treatments, and, and, and there's like there's a whole. Uh, it's not just surrogacy and egg donation. There's artificial insemination. There are lots of other things that uh, couples go through uh, to bring children. So just sort of, you know, the, just the, the, you know, in terms of Jewish thought, what should be the approach to this? So I remember when we were uh, studying the issue of, um, of surrogacy at Eretz Chemdan, writing uh, a tshuva on it, um, and a, a really very detailed tshuva, really, uh, you know, covering all, all the aspects of it. But I remember one of the foundations that my father-in-law, Rav Carmel, the head of Eretz Chemdan, laid at the time, and you see this at the basis of the thought of a lot of Muslim who address the issue, is that, and this is something that we, we can see already in Tanakh in numerous places, that fertility is something that you need to fight for. It's not a given. In other words, fortunately for most people, you know, it comes naturally. But for those couples that it does not, does not come naturally, you see in Tanakh that's something that you shouldn't, you shouldn't just uh, throw your hands up in the air and give up. That's something that you need to fight for. And you see that, you see that first of all with uh, Sarah and Abraham. You know, Sarah saw that she wasn't able to bear children, so she took the only options that she had, and she took a surrogate, a surrogate in the, not in the modern uh, sense of the word that we use it today, but a classical surrogate. She took another woman in her stead to, to bring a child, Hagar, until she was able, later on, she was blessed and able to bring a child. And you see that with Rivka, you see that also later on with uh, Rachid, right? That's one of the sources I brought here on um, here in the source pages. See here regarding Yitzchak, it says, "Vayater Yitzchak la'Adonai le'Nochach Ishto, vayater Adonai v'Tar Rivka Ishto." In other words, we see Yitzchak on the one hand that when he saw that his wife was barren, he prayed to Hashem, and Hashem responded his prayers. And Yaakov, who was having children with Leah, but not successfully with Rachel, and Rachel complained to him, and she said, she became envious of her sister, and Rachel said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob answered her, can I take the place of God who has denied you the fruit of the womb? And Chazal, our sages, criticized um, Yaakov for having said that. The Midrash says, this is how you respond to those in distress. And, and we see this also in other places in Tanakh. For example, the story of Hana, who also really battled uh, against Hashem. You know, she came with a demand and she made promises to have a child. And ultimately, she was rewarded with Shmuel. So again, we see, we see in Tanakh this message. If you're unable to have children, you, you have to, it's, it's not, you shouldn't throw your hands up in the air. It's something that you should plead for, you should pray for. And, and nowadays we have, you know, other opportunities that science, modern science has enabled us. So certainly, um, you know, couples are to, are to be encouraged to try to, to try to use whatever means, again, within the parameters of Anachaz, we'll discuss, but whatever they can um, to, 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 to bear children. Okay, so that is just, you know, the, you know, just the fundamental in terms of, uh, you know, the thought approach, how we approach these issues. Okay, so let's discuss, first of all, the issue of um, who is the halachic mother. So again, just to clarify, what are the two scenarios of surrogacy and egg donation? 
just practically speaking. So egg donation is in a situation where a woman is able uh, to carry the, the pregnancy. That's not the issue. But for some reason, for whatever reason, medical reason, um, uh, she, she cannot, uh, they're unable to conceive normally with one of her eggs. And th in that situation, what can be done is that another woman will provide her the egg, then the 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 um, the doctors will fertilize the egg in a process called IVF outside the womb with the sperm of the husband, and then the 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 fertilized egg or embryo will be placed inside the womb of the woman, and she will give birth to her child. But essentially. In the case of egg donation, essentially the woman that's giving birth to the child is the one that will be raising the child. It's her husband's sperm, but she's received the egg from another woman. The case of surrogacy is the flip side of that coin, where, uh, again, modern surrogacy I'm talking about, not the ancient surrogacy what appears in Tanakh. Um, it's the flip side of that coin where a woman does have the egg, but she's not able to carry the pregnancy for whatever reason. So they'll take Again, this, this time they will be taking the sperm and the egg of the, of the husband and his wife and fertilizing the egg with the sperm of the husband in this case, but placing it in the womb of another woman that will carry the pregnancy. The surrogate will carry the pregnancy without any genetic connection to the child. The, the, the genetics will be from the husband and the wife, but she will give birth to the child. And after she gives birth, she will hand over that child uh, to the couple. So in the case of surrogacy, actually the mother that will be raising the child is not the is not the um, the one who carried the pregnancy, but rather the one that provided the egg. But really, it's the same question in both cases. It's just sort of in terms of the practical outcome, uh, they're the opposite of each other. Because in the case of egg donation, the woman that's giving birth to the child will be acting as his mother for the rest of his life. And in the case of a surrogacy, it's the reverse, that the woman that's, that's providing the egg, she will be the one that's going to act as his mother later on. And in each case, we have two women participating in the process. And in each case, we have one woman that's really planning on to be the mother of the child and another woman that's just contributing to the other woman, the missing factor, what she's unable to do uh, herself. Okay, recently there have been even developments where you have three women participating in a, in a three a, a three mother child. You can go look it online. There were articles about this where they took most of the egg from one woman, a certain portion of the egg called the mitochondrial DNA from a, a second woman, and a third woman was serving as the, uh, the the surrogate. Okay, so even that's happened, but we're not going to get into that additional complication on on uh, on the case where we're just going to speak about you know, you know the more basic um, cases of, uh, of surrogacy and aggregation where two women are involved so here so many many scheme address this issue there's a tremendous amount of literature on it and you know how, how do you even address such a subject where do you find halakhic sources on who is considered to be the mother on a case that not seem to ever exist in the past. So Postim came up with some very uh, clever uh, sources and very surprising sources. 
we'll just see one of them. Um, ultimately, none of the sources are, are conclusive, as we'll see. So we'll see what what's done practically. But this is just sort of you can see sort of the great lengths that uh, you know Postim have gone to to try to find sources for these cases. So this is a really interesting one, and this is based on a midrash that speaks about the birth of Dina, Dina, the daughter of Yaakov and Leah. Okay, so we have here. Um, the following story. The Gemara in Masechet Brachot says as follows. Uh, it says regarding Leah that afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. And the Gemara here asks, what is the word afterward? What is that coming to say? In other words, Leah had understood that there was some sort of prophecy that there are going to be 12 tribes coming out of Yaakov. Now, she already had six sons. Four sons were born from the uh, two, Bilhan Shifcha, the two uh, maidservants that Rachel gave hers, and afterwards Leah gave hers uh, to Yaakov, again, in this battle to have sort of more sons. So there were already 10 sons born. So she saw that she was pregnant, and she says, If I will bring another male child, that would already be 11. And then at the maximum, Rachel, my sister, would only be able to have one more son. And she would let, it would turn out that she would have less male sons than the maidservants. So due to this prayer of Leah, that she did not want to have another male son, what Hashem did was he answered her prayer and he transformed uh, the male child that was in her womb into a female, into a girl. And that's how Dina uh, was born. Okay, incredible uh, story of the Midrash here, that Dina was originally a male, changed as a fetus into, transformed as a fetus into a female. Okay, so that is one version of the story. However, um, <clears throat> based on a different Gemara in Masechet Nida, we, we won't get into the details, let's just get to the, uh, the bottom line. Here, the Maharsha, uh, the Maharsha has a very interesting commentary on the Gemara. He has his commentary is, is divided into two sections. One is Chidusha Alachot, which is a classical halachic commentary focusing mainly on the, the Tosafot. But the Maosha also, and this is quite unique, the Maosha, there are not many who did this like him, he also has half of his commentary devoted to Chidushe Agadot to address the Agada uh, sections in the Talmud. And he says that actually it wasn't that Dina was transformed from a male into a female, but rather, he brings the following account, and he says, that which Dina was turned into a daughter, In other words, what the Maharshariya claims is actually parallel to Leah being pregnant, Rachel was also pregnant. But the problem was that Leah was pregnant with a male child, a male fetus. 
and Rachel was pregnant with a female fetus. And again, Leah had prayed to Hashem, she did not want this to happen, that she would have another male and her sister would have a female, which would mean that her sister would only have one tribe uh, coming out of her. She wanted her sister to have at least two tribes. And she prayed to Hashem, and what Hashem did was actually switch the fetuses. So the fetus, the female that was in Rachel, was moved over to Leah's womb. And Leah, the fetus that was in Leah was moved over into Rachel's womb. Okay, very spectacular midrash. This is also quoted in the Targum Yonatan, one of the later uh, translations of the... Um, of the uh, Torah into Aramaic, not the famous Unkelus translation, uh, but the translation attributed to Yonatan, which is a lot of times often more of a Midrash, the Targum Yonatan. And you can see here, the, here he says also in Aramaic, this whole story, In other words, that the fetuses were switched in the womb and Yosef, who was originally in Leah's womb, was transferred to Rachel's womb. And Dina, who was originally in Le Le Rachel's womb, was transferred to Leah. Okay? So now, this is, again, putting aside, you know, the, you know, the, the context of the Midrash in, in history, you know, what, what exactly happened there with the pregnancies, but putting that aside uh, from... You know, just the halachic perspective, perhaps we have a source here for surrogacy. Why? Because in essence, according to this Midrash, it turns out that Yosef was actually conceived by Leah's egg. And Dina was essentially actually conceived by Rachel's egg. Okay, because they started out, Yosef started out in Leah's womb and Dina started out in Rachel's womb. And then they were switched, and Leah ended up giving birth to Dina, who was conceived in originally in Rachel's womb. So this exactly is the case that we're looking for, where we have one woman that provided the egg for the child, and a different woman that gave birth to the child. So Dina, according to this midrash, the egg came from Rachel. But Leah was the one that gave birth to her. Okay? Now, who is considered to be the mother of Dina? What do you say? Leah. What? Leah. Leah, why do you say that? Because we say that she had, uh, just like Leah was Yatsanit, so too she was Yatsanit. <laughs> okay, so you're quoting another Midrash. But even, even that's very good. But even, even, even without that, you know, that's what the Torah records. <laughs> So the Torah seems to say that the mother of Dina is Leah. So from here, we could seemingly conclude, unless you'll come and tell me, rightfully so probably, don't quote me halachic sources from Midrashim, they cannot be relied on uh, as halachic sources. Indeed, sample scheme, that's why they reject this proof. They said, you know, don't hear Midrashim, they have their own goals are coming to tell certain messages, don't, don't mix them in halakhic sources. But let's say if you want to go with this midrash as a halakhic source, seemingly we would come to the conclusion that the woman that gives the birth is the mother, because according to this midrash, this is what happened. 
um, D, uh, Dina was conceived by, Leah, by Rachel's egg, but was given birth to by Leah, and Leah seems to be, if you read the Psukim, seems to be the mother, okay? However, the story of the Midrashim and this story is not over, and we have a reverse Midrash that turns the table on everything that we just said. And this is as follows. Okay, this is a Midrash on the following Pasuk. It says, Uvnei Shimon, this is one of these uh, verses that appear in sort of the uh, boring parts of the Torah, where you just have lists of who gave birth to who and all the lists of the offspring that everybody sort of tries to read quickly and, you know, move on to the next sections. Uh, but sometimes in these lists, you find, you can find, if you're willing to go through all the technical parts, you can find some real treasures. Okay, so here we have a very peculiar pasuk that says as follows, Uvnei Shimon, the sons of Shimon, Yemuel, V'yamin, Be'ohad, V'yachin, V'tzochar, V'sha'ul ben Aknaanit. Okay, so this Midrash seems to allude that Shimon had a wife or a woman, a Knaanit, a Knaanite woman, from which he had a son, Sha'ul. Okay, now here the Midrash, quoted by Rashi, says as follows, and Rashi here says, Uben Aknaanit, who is this Knaanit woman that Shimon had married? So Rashi says, Ben Dina, that this Knani woman was really Dina. In other words, Shimon married Dina and had a son called Shaul. Why did Shimon end up marrying Dina, his sister? In other words, if you remember, the story of Dina was that she was raped by Shem, Shem ben Chamor, and he had taken her, and he wanted to marry her after he had raped her, and he negotiated a whole deal with Yaakov that he would be allowed to marry her, and there would be a truce between uh, his people, his tribe, and uh, the people of Yaakov, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, he wanted to negotiate that with the sons of Yaakov, and they tricked him, they told him, uh, we will agree to this deal if you will all circumcise yourselves, and they agreed, they readily circumcised, and during the third day, when they were weak from the circumcision, Shimon and Levi came, they killed the entire city, Shechem, plus all the people of his city, and took back Dina. So now the Midrash says, when they came to take back Dina, Dina did not want to go out. Why did she not want to go out? Because she said, she said to them, who is going to marry me? After I was defiled by, by Shechem, no man is going to marry me. And this was, all, this, was a, this was a serious problem in the ancient world. Once a woman was raped, uh, her, her chances of finding a husband um, were, uh, were futile. So what happened was Shimon swore to her that he would marry her. In other words, he was the one that killed Shem. He took away her only chance, Shem, to, to marry her. So he said, I'll, I'll, I'll take responsibility for the situation and I, I, will, I, will, uh, I will marry. Okay? And that's how Shimon ended up uh, marrying Dina and why she called the Knanit, not that she was a Knanite woman, but because she had been raped by 
the Knanit man named Lishchem. Okay? And that's how Shimon ended up Dina. Now the question that, you know, the, the question begs itself, how could Shimon marry his own sister? This is, you know, a rayot. You're not allowed to marry your own sister. So here, the Balea uh, Tosafot, they bring the following answer to this question. Okay, this will turn the, turn the tables on our surrogacy proof from earlier. And they say as follows. How could Shimon have married his sister? Your sister from your mother's side is prohibited for even for Bnei Noach. In other words, even if you'll say this was before Matan Torah, they were not Jews, but nevertheless, they were still obligated by the Noachide commandments, which had already been given, been given to earlier to Noach. And Arayot in Bnei Noach, it's, it's interesting, even though Bnei Noach also have the commandment of Arayot, what is considered for them Arayot is not exactly to what is uh, considered Arayot for uh, Jews. And one of the criteria of Arayot for Bnei Noach, for example, to prohibit the sister, is if it's a sister from the mother. Okay, and the answer that the Baletos would answer is as follows. Ela yesh lomar shel dina bebeten rachel. In other words, that really Shimon and Dina were not considered brother and sister from the from the mother. They definitely had the same father, Yaakov. But the father doesn't matter. What matters is the mother. And they did not have the same mother. Why? Because Dina was originally conceived by Rachel. So according to this, according to this explanation of the Balatosfot, who is really considered the mother of of Dina, which woman? The woman that gave birth to her or the woman that provided the egg? They're saying essentially that Shimon and Dina were not brother and sister. Shimon again was the son of Leah. But Dina, they're saying, was not considered the son of Leah. Why? Because really Rachel is the mother of Leah. And that's how Shimon was allowed to marry Dina. Okay, because they did not have the same mother. So they're assuming that the halachic mother is the one that provides the egg. Okay, exactly the opposite on this same case, the, exactly the opposite of what we claimed earlier. They're considering that the, uh, that the mother is really Rachel. So we, it turns out that we go by the woman that provides the egg. Yeah, sorry, somebody want to ask a question? Yes. Hi, uh, yes. So yeah. there's two points in the Tosfo. One point is, is that with the B'nai Noah, um, the mitzvah B'nai Noach. Did they know about the mitzvah B'nai Noach? I mean, mm-hmm. don't we say that the Shavah mitzvah B'nai Noach are known through Torah Moshe rather than, rather meaning not necessarily people were keeping mitzvah B'nai Noach um, before uh, before Matan Torah. How how does he how does he how is why is he assuming that they would they would they would their mitzvah B'nai Noach was something that was was something that was um, a, Obligatory before Matan Torah. No, look, the, the seven mitzvot they were already commanded to Bnei Noach, right? There were six actually to Adam Rishon, and then the seventh yeah. one was added to Bnei Noach. You, you are correct that the Rambam writes that once Torah Moshe is given, yeah. even the seven mitzvot Bnei Noach need to be kept by Torah Moshe. That applies, by the way, to other mitzvot that uh, uh, were stated before Matan Torah, but 
once the Torah was given, now the obligatory nature of them stems from. from ah, you see, so it, so it changed, right, right. But it doesn't mean it doesn't mean to say that they weren't obligatory before. It's just that now the obligation is based on Matan Torah. Like for example, you know the commandment of Gid and Ashe. It appeared earlier, but we fulfill it nowadays because in Matan Torah, Hashem said, "You still have to keep." You know what was done previously, or what was said previously, and... right? And the second point is that his his answer is based on yeah, it's quite problematic that his answer is based on something that's just midrashic. That okay, well, this is also a midrash, so the whole thing is a midrash. Again, yeah. the point for us is not again, like I said, you know that we would probably say you can't prove anything from here just on the basis that's a midrash, and the midrash is not trying to tell you halacha. It's coming to give some sort of idea, and we have to figure out whatever the idea is. You could reject this whole proof just on based on that. But I was just trying to show you sort of an interesting example of how they tried to prove it. But again, even this proof, even if you take the Midrash as face value, and you say the Midrash is sort of telling us some sort of halakha, you can come to a completely opposite conclusion. One reading of the Midrash will lead you to the conclusion that the birth mother is the mother. Another reading of the Midrash, uh, like the Banat also here read it, will bring you to the conclusion that the the uh, the one the woman that provides the egg is the mother. Okay, thank you. Yes, who, who else, got uh, a Simon? Simon. Yeah, I, I don't see how the Tosfot's reading of the midrash makes sense in terms of the midrash itself, because the whole point of the midrash is that Leah doesn't want to be the mother of Yosef. Right. Um, so if they're already basing themselves on the midrash, they seem to be contradicting it at the same time as they're basing themselves on it. Right. In other words, I mean, it could be that, you know, everybody thinks of, of Yosef as the, the son of Rachel, right? Yaakov certainly did. That's why he loved him so much. But in a, so everybody, he was definitely treated as the son of Rachel. But sort of they're saying on the pure halachic level, she was not considered the mother. But, you know, in terms of her feelings and, you know, what, what, how her, her status in the family, she gave birth to Yosef. So that was maybe that was sufficient for her, even if it wasn't, you know, in theory, the, according to the proper halakha, uh, maybe she's not considered to be the mother. I guess that's how they would explain it. Again, I agree with you. The whole thing is very difficult. I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole scenario here is quite spectacular. But, but um, again, we're just trying, just trying to show sort of the lengths um, that, uh, or, or you know, some interesting attempts to try to prove uh, one way or another. There's a, I, if anybody's interested, I can send this in Hebrew, uh, a detailed tshuva that we wrote summarizing, I think there are six or seven sugyot that, you know, Puskima trying to prove one way or another. Bottom line, though, it's, it's, it's impossible to, to uh, uh, no side was able to prove one way or the other. Is the woman that gives birth, um, is the mother, or is the woman that provides the egg is the mother? I, I can tell you, for example, my Rosh Yeshiva, it was clear to him that the woman who gives birth uh, is the mother, but there's no way to prove it. Other poskim, and I personally, that's my personal tendency, would lean towards the opinion that, you know, the woman that provides the egg is the mother, because really the child is 100% made from what he, which he provided. The other woman that's carrying the pregnancy is essentially like an incubator. Okay, but again, there's no way to prove, there's no way to prove that, that that's correct, according to Allah. It's sort of your, your own personal inclination. That's what you put more, more emphasis on. Um, you know, the genetic composition or sort of what you see. This is the woman that gave birth. So you see that she's the mother. It, it, um, yeah. might, it be, might it be possible to say you actually need both components? In, in other words, 
in this case, perhaps, luckily, the, the child has no mother because for, 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 for you to deem that the child have had a mother, you must have both the genetic material and, and the incubating potential or whatever you want to call it, the carrying potential. Yeah, you could claim that. There is somebody that claimed also the opposite argument, that this child has really two mothers, okay? There is such a, I think it was Rav Kilav, if I'm not mistaken, he wrote a whole article claiming that this child has two mothers. You could also claim the child has no mother. Um, but again, none of these things have, there's any way to prove it. So practically, practically the, the solution for this is to be stringent both ways. In other words, to, to consider that the child has, for our purposes, because of this doubt, both women, we have to be concerned that either woman could be uh, the mother of the child. Okay, because again, it's not it's not possible to prove. Now, what are the ramifications of that? If we say that according to halakha, both women could be the mother of the child. So let, let's think about it carefully. If let's say both women are Jewish, okay, both the one the woman that provides the egg and the woman that provide that carries the, the child, both of them are Jewish, then what would be the Jewish status of the child? Would he be Jewish or not? Obviously, yes, because obviously, way. yeah, obviously, yes, because whoever the mother is, both women are Jewish. So that's not a problem. However, what would this child need to be concerned about? Well, making sure both he marry siblings from either mother. Exactly. He won't be able to marry siblings from either mother. Now, let, let's think about this carefully. And a few other things, we'll have to do a kibbutz aim to both mothers as well, presumably. Okay, well, look, I mean, one of the women is not going to be around. So, because again, one woman is just providing the egg and going off, or she's, she's carrying the baby and probably, I would think, you know, she's not going to be raising the child. So, uh, I mean, that's probably a more minute issue. The more significant issue is that you won't, I see, oh, I see there's a question here from Asaf. Yeah, go ahead. Going, going back on what the Moshev Zekinim uh, writes, seemingly it's not so clear to make it a binary distinction, either the egg or the birth. He says they, the, the majority of the, the pregnancy. So seemingly there's somewhere in between who held the pregnancy longer, who was more involved in this development of the baby. Right, you could claim that as well. You could claim that really it was only in that case because it wasn't only the egg, but also she carried some of the pregnancy again. But, you know, but that's sort of harder to define. Usually we think of either the egg or, or the birth. You're right, and in that case, it wasn't just the egg, it was egg plus part of the development of the fetus. So maybe that's why the argument is there, is there more powerful. Um, again, you could, you could raise a lot, a lot of arguments. Some have claimed, for example, well, by the man, he's not giving birth, he's just providing the sperm. And he's considered the father just on account of his sperm. So maybe that should be the same for the woman, that she could be considered the mother just on account of that she's providing the egg. Uh, but on the other hand, the man is not expected to do more. The woman is doing more. So maybe for her, the definition of being the mother is different. Again, there are a lot of arguments that you could raise here. It's, you know, it's an interesting exercise trying to, you know, to, to flesh out all the possible arguments. But I'm just saying it's very hard. It's, it's, it's impossible, really, to, to, to prove it one way or the other. So... Uh, can I ask? Yeah. So I don't know yeah, if I... Go ahead. I don't, I don't know what Eilam this was uh, was intended for, so I don't want to speak out of turn. But you would you want to be 
For Shaila, because you're um, taking on the whole thing is an unresolvable suffix, if mm-hmm. you had pe- uh, people whose status as Kayanim depended on this question, mm-hmm. you would not allow them to make Bekas Kayanim, say Bekas Kayanim, get Aliyah's Kayanim, how would you deal with that? No, the Kohen is the, 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 defined by the father. So if... if, if uh... Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. So where where it comes up is if the if uh, there was a, a surrogate surrogate children and a non-Jewish uh, the non-Jewish mother involved. So of course, the the coin is defined by the father. But if the father had the child through a non-Jewish woman, then right, the so, not carrying him. And if it's so through the Jewish, woman, I didn't explain I that. Mean, they would be safe Kohani, but we'll get into that. That's in the case where one of the women is not Jewish. It's certainly, but even. Even before that, the child would need to undergo a giur, uh, misafik. Yeah, there was, a, there was a case in London uh, some time ago. Mm-hmm. I was quite involved in it. Mm-hmm. They got a... They did get a clear akhra at the time. They didn't or they did? It did. Oh, it did? It did, what? yeah. The case was uh, genetic. The mother was a... With a the, the genetic mother was Jewish. Was um, married to a Kohen, carried mm-hmm. not able to carry the ch- the children, um, mm-hmm. carried by a non-Jewish surrogate. Mm-hmm. The children do conduct themselves as Kayanim. Vad Yosef mm-hmm. uh, gave a psak Kayanim lechol davar. I myself spoke to Ibnisim Karelitz. Well, sort of, but in his, uh, went to his base raw about it. Mm-hmm. And Vosna and Osher Weiss is very convinced of that. Of that, that the genetic the mother is Eka. Yeah, I would assume, look, for, for, for just Duchening, you know, it's a much lighter question. So it could be somebody who really believes that it's the egg mother, uh, you know, maybe he would allow to Duchen, but I think I'm pretty sure they would still require a Giyur Lechumra. Oh yeah, here oh, okay. you don't. You do that as a one-off. Of course, you do that. Right. Again, like I said, I said there are posthum that sort of lean towards one way, and therefore, you know, on certain issues, they'll sort of, you know, that might t- tilt the the deciding factor. Even if you duchen, it's not so clear that you're over any issue if you're not uh, if you're not the coin. So it could be that regarding. But certainly, the whole well, whether you make a brach or not. Okay. All right. Okay. Again, I'm saying it could be. I'm not. I'm not denying that. But uh, let's let's before I get into sort of all those details, just on I want to make clear that the fundamentals. So, so, but so practically speaking, we would need we would need to be concerned that the child would not be able to marry neither the the mother that provided the egg nor the mother that provides the that provides the um, both neither the neither neither relatives of the mother that provides the egg, nor relatives of the mother that carried the child in her womb. Now, in the case of surrogacy, that's easier to get on top of. Okay, why? Because you always know who the surrogate is, right? If the surrogate is somebody that you hire. You're you're in touch with her the entire month, months, and after afterwards, you come and you know she hands over the baby to you after she gives birth. So it's not a it's not a problem for a couple to say, okay, I'll take that into account and I'll let my child know, you know, this woman was the surrogate or whatever. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, but I'll somehow when 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 he comes to marry, I'll make sure that he's not marrying 
any other child of this of this woman um, who was a surrogate. By the way, as far as I know, anyway, all surrogates are women that have children of their own because nobody takes a surrogate unless she's proven um, that she's she, she's successfully uh, given birth to babies previously. So as far as I know, all surrogates are all women who already have have given birth to children of their own. So they would need to make sure that he doesn't their child doesn't end up marrying one of the other children uh, of, of the same surrogate that gave birth to him. Okay, fine. Where it becomes more tricky is on the case of egg donation, because egg donation is often done anonymously, okay? And if you're receiving an egg donation from a Jewish woman, then you somehow have to take care somehow to know who that woman is to to ensure that you will not end up uh, marrying, you know, one of her relatives. Okay, we'll see later on how in Israel they attempted to solve this this problem. On the under on the one hand, to maintain egg donation anonymous, but on the other hand, um, um, to to ensure um, that that the child born will not end up marrying one of the uh, one of his uh, relatives from the 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 egg mother. Okay. Now that's if both women are Jewish. What happens if one of the women is not Jewish? So do we need to be concerned about the issue of the relatives of the non-Jewish woman? No, it's not a concern. Why is it not a concern? First of all, hopefully this child is not going to marry anybody who's not Jewish. Secondly, even if he were, it might be a genetic problem, but because if he's born to a non-Jewish woman, as Asun mentioned, we need to convert him, then he's not considered to be related to them anymore. So using a non-Jewish woman as either the surrogate as the egg donor, that sort of solves one half of the problem, that we do not need to be concerned about relatives from this woman. On the other hand, we have created a different problem, that now we have doubt whether um, the child is considered to be Jewish or not. Okay, so to solve that problem, the, the child would need to undergo gyu, okay, and gyu out of this suffix, out of this doubt, and and um, uh, again in both cases. And the main ramification for that would be once the child has undergone gyu, is is whether is if it's a girl, then she would not be allowed to marry a kohen. Okay, that would be the major ramification of this process. So if Somebody's using an egg donor who's not Jewish or a surrogate who's not Jewish. Again, so we've solved the problem of the one hand of the relatives of the other one, but the child will, will need to go uh, undergo conversion to alleviate any doubt as to the Jewish status. And the main ramification of that would be that if it's a girl, she would not be allowed to marry a Kohen. Why, why can't marry Why is it because of the conversion that can't marry a Kohen? Yes, a woman that's okay. been converted is not allowed to marry a Kohen. Well, that's, that's why, okay. Okay, yeah. and here, even though it was a conversion out of doubt, a suffix, but nevertheless, since it's a suffix on a prohibition from the Torah, then we would need to be stringent and she would not be allowed to marry a Kohen. Okay, that's the, the downside to that. But again, it's, you know, it's... it's um, the the other issue that arises, this is a very interesting question. Forgive me for for not knowing the halacha, but when when there's a small, when there's a very young child, how do you do gil? Because they can't accept kabbal Torah. They're, you have to wait to a certain age, or no? You you there is a process called gil tanim, 
which by the consent of the parents, the Beidin is allowed to, uh, to convert children. It's something that's done in many cases, not just in this case. Anytime, there are many times that, uh, you know, a woman converts and she has young children and uh, we also convert uh, along with her, her children. So it's, it's quite a common procedure to do Giyuktanim. There's a whole halachic analysis to how that's possible. It's a good question that you're raising. They're not doing Kabbalat mitzvot, so it could be that we're doing it under the principle of Zachin, that we think it's a zchut for them, it's a positive for them to become Jewish, mm-hmm. or perhaps the fact that their parents bring them. There's a whole... It's a whole, it's a so whole they don't have to redo it, it after their bar and bar mitzvah. Then. We don't no, as them. long as they do not... That's a, another... There are opinions that in certain situations when the child reaches bar and bar mitzvah, they can object to the conversion. Mm-hmm. Again, that never happens, and even so, it's not clear that it can be done in all cases. In this case, it certainly will not apply because this child is already obligated in mitzvot just out of the safik, okay, because of the doubt that they may be Jewish. So certainly they have no way of, uh, of, 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 of countering this viewer. Okay, thank you. Okay, what I'll raise very briefly, okay, uh, I'm probably opening up a whole Pandora's box with this, but I'll, I, I, I can't resist the temptation. Is the question is too interesting, I'm sorry, but it's just too interesting. Too many questions. Yeah, it is, it is too interesting. I'll just I'll just throw it out there, and hopefully I won't receive a uh, um, a whole avalanche of questions on this, but maybe I will. The question that arises, and this is one of the big challenges that Batidin struggle with, um, is what happens if a if a couple of a Jewish child uh, of a child that has brought a child in this means where both parents are Jewish, but they are not Shomer uh, Torah they're not observant, but they do want their child to be Jewish, and they are aware of this situation that they've brought in with a non-Jewish surrogate or a non-Jewish egg donor, and they come to the Beidin and they ask for the child to be converted. Because usually, if let's say, um, they would bring a child to the Beidin, when, when any time parents want their child converted for whatever reason there's a need, you know, because of adoption or because the mother isn't Jewish and, you know, then the Beidin requires the parents to be observant. So some Beidin would come along and say, you know, also in this case, they will require the parents to become observant prior to converting the child. However, what some uh, Dayanim in the world have claimed, and Eretz Chemda were, were in the next, the upcoming volume, the 10th volume of the Marabazak, uh, we have a very detailed tshuva trying to prove this, that actually in this case, even if the parents are not observant, the child should still be converted. Why not? Because right now the child is in the status of limbo. He's sort of half Jewish or half not, right? There's a doubt as to what his status is. And therefore, it is considered to be in the child's benefit, despite whether he will be raised to be observant or not, just to put him out of the misery of this doubtful status of whether he's Jewish or not, it is considered to be in the child's uh, benefit to be to be converted. And even if um, even if the parents are not observant, that uh, a beidin should still go ahead and convert the child. And this is the practice of of some uh, of some batidin in Israel. At least I know there are batidin that do this in some other places in the world. Okay, but this is one of the uh, burning hot potato questions that are, are out there currently in the world regarding this specific scenario. Okay, but if if a, if a couple is is bringing a child in this one of these fashions, that's certainly that's something that they have to prepare for, for the need to, uh, uh, to convert the child. <clears throat> okay, so 
moving on, we'll move on. See, our time is limited, so we'll try to um, get quickly the next topic. And that is as follows. Okay, the question here is as follows. May the egg donor or the surrogate mother be married? Okay, can we use a married woman to be the egg donor or the surrogate? What's the problem in this situation? The problem is that if she's married, in essence, she's going to at least half bring a child to the world from the sperm of a man who's not her husband. Now, if she's not married, fine. You know, even if she's not having relations with this man, but so there's no, no problem in that sense. And also the, the child is at the worst case, even if she's the mother and somebody else is the husband, if she's not married, then you know, there's no problem with the status of the child. Again, a child born of, a, of, a, of a, a single woman with a man, even if the man is married, there's no, there's no uh, taint uh, to the status of the, of the child. However, if the egg donor is married or if the surrogate is married, and again, the sperm is coming from a man who's not her husband, a Jewish man who's not her husband, will this define the child as a mamzer? Or not, because again, let's say, take for example the case of the egg donor. Her egg will be fertilized. She's a married woman, and her egg will now be fertilized with, with the sperm of another man who's not her husband. Will that define this child as a mamzer? If she had relations with this man, then certainly the child would be a mamzer. The question is, if her egg was fertilized by his sperm, would that uh, make the child a mamzer? Or the same question on on the surrogate. Again, she's carrying a child in her womb. And the father is not her husband, it's some other Jewish man. So will that make the child into a mamzer? Okay, so that's that's the second question that we have. Okay, so the main, main opinion ex widely accepted by most of the poskim is the opinion of Rav Moshe Feinstein. And I just quoted, I didn't quote all the, the proofs for this, just sort of the bottom line of what he writes. And he says, According to Moshe Feinstein, Mamzerut can only be created by the prohibited relations. Okay? So if a married woman has relations with a man who's not her husband, a Jewish man who's not her husband, then the child conceived is a Mamzer. But if she, had, if she, uh, if she somehow got pregnant by a man uh, who's not her husband, but it wasn't through the act of bia, the act of having the prohibited relations, then the child is not defined as a mamzer. So according to Ramosha Feinstein, none of these cases are any problem. Why? Because the egg donor could be married, the surrogate could be married, because again, there are no prohibited relations taking place. It's all being done in a lab, the combination of the sperm and the egg, uh, then placed into the woman's womb. So there's no issue of mamzerut, no problem with the status of the child. However, Although his opinion is the majority opinion, there is a minority opinion um, said by some poskim, the most famous one being Rav Shlomo Zalman Oyerbach, who he claimed that Mamzerut is not dependent on the prohibited via. He writes in Minchat Shlomo, again, I quoted just sort of the bottom line. He says, shel mamzerut lo talui klal 
ונוצב משני גופים מחולקים ולא תפסי ביור קידושין ואסורה עליו משום ערווה. In other words, according to the Rav Oyerbach, it's not the prohibited relations with the creates the mamzer, but rather the lineage of the child, that he is, he has the mother on the one hand uh, and the father on the other hand, and these mother and father are two people that are prohibited um, to be married to each other, because again, she's married to another man, okay? And just that lineage of the child, even if it didn't, even if he wasn't born through a, an act of prohibited relations, he is considered uh, a mamzer. Okay, so when push comes to shove, if we would have a child born in such a situation, practically we would not consider him a mamzer because the kalalacha is like Rav Moshe Feinstein, and that is the widely accepted opinion. However, we do not want to sort of initially create a child. Uh, you know, that according to some Kostim could potentially be considered a mamzer. So that's why we avoid uh, taking an, a Jewish married egg donor, okay? Because in the case of an egg donation, you're actually putting, you know, combining the sperm of one man with the egg of another woman who's married. Again, according to Moshe Feinstein, that would not be the child of mamzer, but according to Rav Orebach, it would. So we try to avoid that situation. Rav Amar, uh, Rav Shlomo Amar, chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, former chief rabbi of Israel, uh, in the tshuva, which he says was signed off by Rav Abad Yosef, he writes that this does not apply to surrogacy. Why not? And in surrogacy, you could take um, a married woman as well, because he says here as follows, he says, that I'm putting uh, the sort of the fertilized uh, egg with the fertilized egg in the womb of a married woman. In other words, what he claims that even the opinion, the more stringent opinion of Orbach, was only applied when you took, you sort of combined the sperm directly with the married woman. However, in the case of surrogacy, what you're doing first is taking the sperm of the man and further fertilizing the egg of his wife. And in essence, in the married woman, you're not actually putting sperm, you're actually putting already sort of the embryo as well, the, you know, the fertilized egg. So that's more removed. And therefore he claimed that even according to Rav Oyerbach, this would not be considered mamzerut. Um, uh, so since this psaq of Ram Amar, it has become accepted to use also married uh, surrogates Married, even married Jewish women can serve as surrogates. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. Prior to this sack of Rav Amar, there were some very suspicious occurrences in Israel that a lot of the women who were serving as surrogates happened to be become divorced uh, at a close proximity uh, to them uh, starting to serve as surrogates, which raised the suspicion that these weren't real divorces, but just you know, divorces on paper to allow them to serve as uh, surrogates. But um, since this pack has become more accepted, then uh, I hope at least that, you know, people are not doing the, these kinds of things and they should be approved to serve as surrogates, um, even, even, even if they're married. Okay, because here, even the small concern of this opinion of Orbach is, is more far removed because again, it's not a direct putting of a sperm in a married woman. It's, it's more removed for sperm into the egg and only then the egg into the, the fertilized egg into, into the woman. Okay, um, 
So that, that is, so again, we said again, practically better to avoid a, uh, so just to sum up what we said so far, again, if you're taking, um, if, if both women are Jewish, then as we said, the child is definitely Jewish. We've solved that problem, but you have to take concern that both women are considered to be mothers. If one of the women is not Jewish, then the child will need to undergo a giur misafek uh, to solve his any any status to, to his Jewish status. And in regards to the use of a married woman, so a married woman, a married Jewish woman can serve as a surrogate. For an egg donor, we try to avoid uh, married women. However, if a married Jewish woman did provide the egg, then post facto, the child would not be considered the mom's there, relying on the opinion of, of Moshe Feinstein. Okay. So our time is up, but please, if anybody has any questions, then go ahead. Thank you, Hacham. We've got one question here in the room. Hacham, uh, thank you yeah. for your time today. Just wondering, if uh, there's a man who's unmarried or a woman who's unmarried, you can address them either together or separately, <coughs> would, they be, would there be a mitzvah on each or both of them to do the mitzvah puravu? notwithstanding the fact that they're not married, and maybe they would just take the sperm from the unmarried man, put it in uh, a woman who would carry that sperm, uh, uh, sorry, a woman who may or may not be Jewish, let's say, um, in order to enable him to be to do the mitzvah of, uh, or I suppose a woman would have to be Jewish for, for that situation, to, you know, to do the pruravu, or the other way around, the Jewish woman taking a sperm who may, from someone who may not be Jewish, um, in order to have a child, but not be married, is that something that halacha considers or looks at, or has? If you had any cases like this, well, I mean, again, that's sort of a difficult one to answer. First of all, the mitzvah pruvu is on the man; it's not on on the woman. So halachically, really, the man who's obligated is the one who's obligated uh, to to um, he, he's the one that has the mitzvah or pruvu. A woman. Is not commanded, but obviously, naturally, she has the desire. Like I said at the beginning, it's something that we want to encourage. Um, now, the answer to that case is really they should get married. That's what they should do, right? So that's the that's the official answer that that you will receive, you know. For, but obviously, sometimes people have not succeeded in getting married. So here we're getting into a very delicate question. This often happens the case primarily by women who reach a certain age. And they, they feel that they haven't been able to successfully marry and they feel the pressure, you know, that their years are dwindling away. And if they don't act now, um, they will not have children. So most of them do not advise uh, to recommend them to, to, for a woman, let's say, because that's really the, the more practical scenario. They do not encourage this taking um, artificial insemination and, and, and having a child. Um, because, you know, we're sort of, you know, we're traditional and, you know, we really think the most appropriate way to raise a child is within the framework of marriage. However, should a woman desire to do this, then the advice would be to take sperm from a non-Jewish man. Okay. And why a non-Jewish man? Because sperm donation is anonymous. And if we were to take from a Jewish man, again, we would run into all kinds of problems of not knowing who the father is. So better to take to take sperm from a non-Jewish man, and in that way, um, you know there won't be any problems uh, with who the father is because it's anyway a non-Jew. The child will be fully Jewish because the mother is Jewish, 
And if a woman is really insisting on doing that, then that's the correct way to do it. And again, we can't, we wouldn't be able, we, we can't judge a woman who does such a thing or criticize her because, you know, the, the, I think the, you know, the stress in that situation when you reach a certain age is really unbearable. So I think we have to be sympathetic and not encourage that, but certainly be sympathetic to, to such a situation and guide her, you know, at, at the very least from the halakhic perspective to use um, artificial insemination from a non-Jew. So practically speaking, you say get from a non-Jew rather than a Jew, mm-hmm. but it's usually anonymous anyway. So what does that mean in practice? No, well, I mean, first of all, there are people that sort of go ahead and pick a partner for these things. Okay. Oh, I see. Right. Um, but if they pick a specific, again, then we're getting to, to other problems. So in Chutzla, in Israel, it's more of a problem. In, in Israel, in Chutzla, it's, it's more, it's, it's more simpler because you go to a sperm bank and then you sort of go by the road that the child is, uh, is, uh, and you can rely on that road for, for your sin. Right. Uh, correct. Correct. In Israel, it's more of a problem. That's why some people in Israel are trying to advance that there will be some sort of records on on uh, the sperm banks in Israel. I, I think you just meant La Fuka, that people could come to, some people come to an arrangement with someone that they'll, even though they're not actually living together, that they yeah, but, combine yeah, their material to create a child. Even even though you can't, you the sperm is anonymous. You do you can choose sort of certain certain things about who the the identity of the sperm. Yeah, I heard about this one. One woman who did this happened to tell me about it once. They got okay. Yeah, high and there's a whole for it. And yeah, and the prices uh, changed. It's, there's a whole you know it's a whole world onto its own. But um, yeah, unfortunately, that's the, that's the way it is. Rama, you were going to tell us about development in the in the Israeli society that makes things a bit easier. Uh, is that we run out of time for that? Yeah, it's it's on the um, it's on. Uh, we ran out of time, but it's on the the source pages. I'll post it on the uh, Discord app to make sure that everyone can uh, can have a look at it because I understand right. it's on eleven thirty p.m. for you, Rob. Uh, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm wide awake, but uh, I don't want to keep everybody. But it's there's a summary on it on the source pages, which uh, Sina I think will will send out. Any other questions? Please unmute. No? Okay. Hacham, thank you so much for not only the shiur, for the series. Um, we are very looking, very much looking forward to hosting you for the next series at the Chabura. Anyone who's listening on the podcast right now, um, please do make sure that you listen to the other two parts of the series. If you haven't done, anyone listening to it on the website, likewise. Um, Hacham, again, really, really appreciate everything you've done uh, just to keep uh, everyone updated over the next couple of weeks we have series from rabbi dr alan kimchi um uh, senior rabbi joseph dweck Midrash, as well as rabbi nita devorah halevi please find all the information on our website and again Acham, really appreciate it we want you in person next time please god covid willing uh, and uh, that you'll be here in person the talmudim and talmudot are very excited to meet you in person so thank, thank you, you. Take care. Good night, everybody.